Let's take our Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And a pretty long passage tonight as we're going to cover verse 1. Just verse 1 tonight. There's plenty here to work us over tonight. And so uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 and Really what we've seen here is that Paul has been telling us how the gospel is sufficient, that the gospel is sufficient, that Christ and the Holy Spirit are sufficient for righteousness in your life. And what we see in chapter 6 is he's, he's shown us the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit and how those play their way out in our lives. And really as we get into chapter six, here's what we're looking at is how the spirit works specifically in the context of the local church, how the spirit goes to work, making the church what Jesus wants it to be and making your life what he wants it to be. And so kind of over the next few weeks, we're going to take this main title, the spirit works, the spirit works. I want you to know that. I want you to have confidence in that. But there's also a little play on words there that the Spirit works through the church as well. And so this first week, what we're looking at this is the Spirit works in this way, restoring the fallen, restoring the fallen. And so that's what we're going to consider today. So if you find your place in Galatians chapter 6, let's stand. In honor of God's word, we'll read our passage together. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. There's a lot there. <laughs> There's a lot there in that one power-packed verse that God wants us to consider Tonight, as we look at the Spirit works at restoring the fallen. So may God bless his word. You can be seated and we'll consider our passage tonight. In 2019, the Houston Chronicle released an investigative report about the Southern Baptist Convention. And it detailed that there were 380 allegations of widespread child abuse throughout the convention in many churches, sexual abuse in particular. And it was spread across elected officials, pastors, staff members, volunteer workers, I mean, all across the board. And going back all the way to 1998, they found allegations with this. And so the SBC launched an internal investigation to check these things out, to see if they were true. And unfortunately, they did find them to be true. And so just about a little over a month ago, a list of hundreds of names who were found to be guilty in their investigation were released in a report and are now being dealt with uh, legally. The main problem is that while many of these offenses were reported, few of them were ever, ever, ever actually dealt with. They were just left alone. They were covered up. And that's really what the problem, I mean, you understand things like that are going to happen, but the deepest problem in it is that people were covering up the faults of the brethren. And that is never okay to do. 
It was allowed to go on and on, year after year, with no penalty, no discipline, and no work of restoration. Now, while many would enjoy pointing the finger at the SBC, the truth of the matter is, is that this is a problem that runs rampant all across the denominational board. And unfortunately, that includes in our independent Baptist churches as well. You might remember, I can remember in 2011, I believe, when I was in college, that a 2020 series came out about the rampant sexual allegations within IFB churches, independent fundamental Baptist churches. And so it revealed that even in our circles that there has been widespread abuse and cover-up. And it's unfortunate. Um, and you might ask, why does that happen? I mean, why? And that's a, that's a reasonable question, and that's a question that many secularists would come at the Christian church with, is why is it that these so-called Bible-believing Christians can commit such heinous and disgusting crimes in a church context? The answer is quite simple. We are all but flesh. We're all but flesh. We are sinners, and none of us are above it. And so if we choose to walk after the flesh, then the works of the flesh are going to be manifested in our lives as they are given in chapter 5 and verse, uh, verse number 19 through 21. And many of those have to deal with sexual issues. And so we understand that that's going to happen if you walk after the flesh. Well, if anything's clear from Scripture, it's this, that God is not okay with covering up the sins of his people. He doesn't gloss over them. He reveals them. He exposes them, especially when people try to leave them undealt with. If they will not deal with them, God will deal with them. He's proven that time and time again in his word, and he deals with, with us in that way today as well. But we've got to understand this, that God's ultimate goal in dealing with those sinful behaviors is ultimately restoration. Restoration. His desire is that those he has saved who choose to go back into bondage to their flesh would be free again. That's his desire. For them to be free from their flesh, free to live in the spirit, restored to usefulness to God. That's his desire. That's his plan. In fact, he desired it so much that he came and died to make it possible for us. And so as a young church, though, trying to establish a good testimony in our community, we need to know exactly how we are to deal with sin among the brethren. Because we got to realize that when it comes to uh, verse number one, of course, we tend to go to the major issues like abuse, like uh, money laundering and things like that that can take place in a church. But we've got to understand that that gossipers need to be restored and slanderers need to be restored and drunkards need to be restored and blasphemers and people who curse all the time. That's all. Those are all manifestations of the flesh and they all need to be restored again. Whether we're talking about what we would consider big sins or little white lies, every person who lives after the flesh needs to be restored to live after the spirit and fulfill God's purpose for their life. And the question as a young church is this, how do we restore people who have fallen. 
Well, that's exactly what verse 1 is about here. Biblical church discipline and restoration. Paul has taught the Galatians that the power to live righteously does not come by the works of the law. That's not how you get righteous is by going back to uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and keeping all those dietary laws and those holy days and, and all those different ifs, ands, or buts that are in the, uh, the Old Testament law. That's not how you become righteous because it could never make you righteous in the first place, nor was it designed to make you righteous. It was designed to show you this, I need a Savior. And therefore, justification being declared righteous before God and living righteously in this life is not by the works of the law. It is by faith in the death of Jesus Christ and it's his indwelling of us and it's his gift of the Holy Spirit that makes us righteous. He's shown us how when you are living after the flesh, it's going to manifest itself in the works of the flesh. But when you live after the spirit, it's going to manifest itself in the fruit of the spirit, that that's going to be a part of your life. As we move into chapter six, he's talking about how the spirit works in the church through spirit filled believers, that when a church is all walking in the spirit, this is how God uses them to help those who are walking in the flesh is what we're really seeing here. And so we're looking at the Spirit's work in restoring the fallen. So how are we as a church to deal with sin in such a way that it restores the fallen? How do we do that? It's inevitable that believers who walk in the flesh will fall in sin. They will fall in sin. What I'm not saying is somebody just somehow uh, stumbles and trips into sin. No, it's a series of conscious choices. But what we're talking about is they end up down in sin. They end up falling. See, as long as we still have a fleshly nature, we will struggle with sin. We're sinners. And sinners have a way, don't we, of making a mess of our lives. Doing things that just make things messy in family, at work, in church. I mean, when we're living after the flesh, we make life messy. So when you have a church full of sinners, a lot of times the church can be a messy place. I mean, let's think about it. A kid's room is messy. Why? Because a kid lives in there. A pig pen is going to look like a pig sty. Why? Because a pig lives in there. And so when you've got a church full of sinful people, it's going to have times when it's a sinful place, when there's sin going on in the church. But God has equipped believers with the Holy Spirit. And when believers are walking in the Spirit, God has a way of cleaning up messy churches through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that we've got to do when we're dealing with sin in the church, number one, we've got to expect that it's going to happen. We've got to expect that it's going to happen, that even redeemed sinners will still sin. We have to expect that at times there will be gossip and slander. It's just going to happen. We have to expect that there will be times when people behave selfishly and act selfishly toward one another, toward family members, toward fellow church members. It's just going to happen. We've got to expect that there unfortunately will be sins of a sexual nature. We have to expect it. 
especially in the kind of culture that we are living in today where things are so easily accessed and it's so easy to get away with people and it's so easy to cover up and hide things. We've got to have the expectation that, you know what, that's going to happen. We've got to expect that there will be times, even as a young church, when we will have to deal with matters of church discipline. Even as a young church, there will be times we've got to deal with that. Now, when I say expect it, I don't say that it means that we should expect it, like, like just, you know, you don't do anything about it. But what I'm saying is this, it's going to happen. Why? Because we're sinners, because we're messy people. And so messy things are going to happen. It doesn't make it right. But here's the point that I'm getting at is that when we expect it to happen, then it helps us not be so caught off guard and so shocked by it that we respond in knee-jerk, fleshly ways to people. Because number one, we're not going to know the whole story up front. Number two, we've got to remember that, that, yes, we have a responsibility to the victim in a church who's been hurt, who's been done wrong, but the other person is a blood-bought child of God as well. The offender is. And God's plan is to fulfill His purpose in their life and to restore them and to get them right. But if we are coming at it and we have no expectation, if our expectation is this, it's church, it's a bunch of saved people, nothing's going to go wrong, everybody's going to do right all the time, everybody's going to treat each other right at the time, there will be no abuse, there will be no problems in our church, then all of a sudden when it happens, bam, it hits you like a ton of bricks. Your heart's broken, and it should be, but it can come to the place where you have hatred and disdain toward offenders. And that's, you can, you can be frustrated with the sin, but we should not be hateful toward the sinner because praise God, he wasn't hateful towards us. No, he was loving towards us. But let me strike a balance here by saying this, that expectation does not equal toleration. Expectation doesn't equal toleration. And so we can't just look the other way when believers mess up. We can't just move on like nothing happened. We can't cover up gossip and slander. We need to call it out and address it for what it is. We certainly can't just sweep sexual sins under the rug and let life and ministry go on as normal. And it doesn't make a difference uh, who it was, where it was, or, or where, what happened. It, it doesn't matter. No, the truth of the matter is, my, my walker's not back there right now, so thanks, George. Appreciate that. Um, but what I'm talking about is it doesn't matter if it's a new church member, if it's a lifelong church member, or if it's a deacon, or even it's the pastor. The scripture shows that every one of us are accountable to God through each other. Every one of us, myself included. And so we can't sweep things under, under the rug, but while we must expect it, we cannot tolerate it. Paul acknowledges here in verse number one that there will be brothers who are overtaken in a fault. There will be. It's going to happen. This word overtaken, it, it means to take or to seize beforehand. Uh, it, it means to, the basic idea is that something is taken prior to an anticipated time. What are we talking about here? You ever had somebody take a picture of you when you weren't ready? <laughs> you know, you're, you're going down a roller coaster 
and you're just screaming your guts out and it snaps that picture of you. You see that flash and then you get off and you go uh, take a look at the pictures and you're like, you know, got the face on or maybe somebody took a picture while you were singing and you just got a weird open mouth face. Or what about when you're putting the fork to your mouth? You got this big old blob of food and now you look like a pig. I mean, why is it that we don't look our best? Because we were taken by surprise. The, the picture was taken by surprise. We weren't expecting it. That's the idea of this word overtaken. It means to be taken by surprise. Now, there's some question here as to in what way they're taken by surprise. Some say that maybe they were caught in the act of sin that they weren't expecting to be caught. They thought they had covered their tracks. They thought that they had done everything to conceal it from the church and to conceal it from other people. They thought they went way to a different town or across state lines or whatever it might be, but they thought they had it concealed. And so when somebody caught them, they were taken by surprise. There are some who, who might say that, but when you consider the structure here and how it's used with this word uh, fault, it actually gives the uh, appearance that the fault took them by surprise. Because when you look at this word fault, it's an interesting word. It, it, it's the word uh, paraptoma, paraptoma. And so you've got the, the suffix there, para, which would mean beside or from. And then the word potoma is actually the New Testament word that they would translate a dead body or a corpse. Uh, but it's also translated fall in other places. And so the idea is that a person has fallen down dead. Okay. And so when you put this together, what it means is they, they fell down. They fell over. They fell beside something. The idea is that you were walking up here, but then you lost foot and you ended up down here where you're not supposed to be. And so you put this together and what it appears to be communicating and what I believe it's communicating is that that a brother can come to the place where he's surprisingly fallen, that he never saw it coming, that it was a situation that as he looked at his life, he said, no, I would never do that. And yet that's exactly where he is. I would never know. It was just it was just a little bit at first. And before you know it, they're in so deep, they can't find themselves a way out of it. And so that's that's the idea. They're overtaken by a fault. It's not something that they that they expected to see them doing. It's it's an unintentional fall from morality. But although it may be unintentional, it's still guilty. What it means is nobody sets out and says, I'm going to have an affair with somebody. No, it began with some conscious choices, some decisions, some inappropriate places, uh, uh, being alone at work or, or, or being alone with another teacher at church or something like that. That it's something that, that it, it was innocent at first and it was something that they, didn't, that they weren't trying to get into. They truly loved their family, loved their spouse and all of those things. But the next thing you know, they're caught in this affair. That somebody who maybe dabbled into pornography never could have seen themselves as an abusive person, and yet that's what happens in their life. It's somebody who, who doesn't think that they would ever embezzle money from the church, but it began with just one decision where, where they just said, you know, I just, I just need a few bucks, and so maybe I'll, I'll just sneak a few here out of the offering, and then before you know it, over the course of years, it's totaled up to thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. That's what we're talking about here. If a man is overtaken in a fault. 
if a man finds himself living and manifesting the works of the flesh in this context. See, what's happening here is, as he's talked about uh, how the Spirit is what gives you the liberty to live righteously through the help of the Holy Spirit, that it's possible that there are some believers here in the churches of Galatia that don't even realize that the things that they're doing in their life are manifestations of the flesh. And now Paul is coming out and he's giving this, this list of sexual sins. And then he talks about idolatry and witchcraft. And then he talks about the hatred and the variance, the emulations, the division that are being created in the church, the jealousy, the drunkenness, the revelings that some people may have been newly born again Christians and they're manifesting all these works of the flesh and they're just now realizing it because Paul has told them and they're looking at their lives and they're saying, I had no idea that this was where I was living and they need to be restored back to living over here, to living righteously and under the control of of, of the Holy Spirit. And so how does this restoration take place? How do we deal with those who find themselves under siege to sin and the flesh? Well, first of all, we've got to expect it. We've got to expect that it's going to happen. And second of all, we can't just tolerate it and cover it up no matter what it is. It's got to be dealt with. Okay, so how do we deal with it in a biblical way? What Paul teaches here is that it is the responsibility of spirit-filled believers to restore those who've fallen in sin. He says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. And so the, the idea here of those that are spiritual will be those who are walking in the spirit. Those who are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And, and so they are living a life under the power and the control of the Holy Spirit. And so this fruit is manifesting itself in their lives. And you contrast that with those who are full of hatred, full of wrath, full of emulations and jealousy and all of those things. Now you tell me when somebody's in trouble, who should be the ones dealing with it? The ones who have love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, or the ones who have hatred and wrath and jealousy. You know, what this is communicating to us. You cannot fight the flesh with flesh. You can't fight the flesh with flesh. No, when a person is dealing with their own battles in their flesh and they're seeking restoration to get back on the right path, what they don't need is somebody coming into their life and casting hatred and jealousy and division and pointing down their sin and jamming it down their throat when they've got their own problems. No, they don't need the flesh because they've already got enough flesh going on here. What they need is somebody who has the Spirit of God coursing through their veins and being lived out in their lives to be able to come and help restore them. They need somebody who can help. The spiritual are supposed to restore the fallen brother or sister. This word restore means to caused to be in a condition to function well. It means to put back into proper order or condition. Okay, It was actually used in a medical context at their day and time uh, to refer to resetting a bone out of joint. Okay, If my ankle was dislocated and flipped the other way right now, 
I would not be able to walk very well right now. I wouldn't be able to run. I wouldn't be able to work. Wouldn't be able to lift things. I wouldn't even be able to stand here and preach. I'd have to sit down or something, but it would be in immense pain and I would lose all form of functionality in my life. And so to restore it means to take that ankle and to reset it in the right place. That's a painful process. <laughs> I was there in, at camp in Indiana when one of our workers, they had this big old blob out in the pool at the camp and he was a real skinny guy, about 120 pounds. And these two big burly guys, about 250 pounds each, so about 500 pounds to 120 pounds, they jump off this platform, they land on this blob and this guy goes, boom, flying through the air. For some odd reason, they have a chain link fence dividing the shallow end from the deep end. He came down on the chain link fence. And when they brought him out, I was sitting right there at the shore and his foot was upside down. It was bad. It was nasty. So me and the other intern took this guy to the hospital and there's this very nice Indian doctor there that, that told him, oh, your foot is out of place. We need to put this back in place. And so he said, okay, do you want me to tell you when? And he said, yes, okay, I'm going to count to three. One, two, pfft, and he puts it back in place, and he was writhing in pain. Restoration's a painful process, but it's necessary to get back to functionality. It was used in the New Testament, this word restore, for the disciples mending their nets. That it, the idea is if you've got a fishing net that's got holes in it, you're going to have trouble catching fish. It's not going to fulfill its purpose of usefulness. And so the disciples were over there on the shore and they were tying up those holes and they were restoring their nets to be able to be used again. We use this word restore in our day and time like restoring a classic car, you know. You got, if you, were, if you were alive, nobody's here at that time, so I don't have to say anybody's old, but if you were alive in 1951... And you got a 1951 Buick Roadmaster. Now, I don't know. I don't know exactly what year you guys were born. <laughs> but uh, anyway, sorry, throw that out there. If you got a 1951 Buick Roadmaster, it's got its classic aqua paint coat on there with the, the white soft top and the white rim tires. And it was in pristine condition. But you know what? Over 50 or 60 years, that thing turns into a clump of rust with a dead engine that has no use on the road. And so what do you do? You take it to a restoration shop. And they slap that, they get all that rust off, or they might replace some fenders where it's too bad. And they put the original stuff back on it. They put that aqua paint coating on there again. And, and then they restore that top and replace it with one that doesn't have all brown, broken down composite junk sticking out of it. And, and, and they put those cool white rim tires back on it. They put a new engine in it and a new transmission in it. And that thing is restored. And then you take it out on the road and you can drive it again. That's what this word restored means. It also means to prepare for a purpose. You know why the Apostle Paul selected this word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Because God wants us to know this. He still has a plan for people who fall and mess up. 
He still has a purpose in their lives. And His desire is to take them from this messed up condition, this messy situation, and to restore them back to their original created purpose, to enjoy and to glorify God, and to fulfill His plan in their life. God still has a plan, even for the most heinous crimes committed. He still has a plan for those people. You know what the church is supposed to be? A spiritual restoration shop for fallen fleshly saints. That's what it's supposed to be. This isn't supposed to be a place where people are constantly nitpicking at each other. Where they're constantly pointing out each other's flaws and failures and warts in their lives. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a chat room for gossip and slander. That's not what a church is. No, it's to be a place where people who are out of joint, people whose nets have holes in them, people who are a little rusty, a little worn out, a little broken down. A church is supposed to be a place where those people can come and where God can reset the joint and where God can mend the holes in their lives and where God can restore the broken condition in their lives. That's what a church is supposed to be, to restore them to a place of usefulness to God. But I'll tell you this, when you're operating in the flesh, all you do is more damage to their lives. But when believers are operating under the power of the Holy Spirit and they're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, then God uses those Spirit-filled people to restore people that have fallen back to usefulness to God. You know, this kind of restorative work, that can have some tendency toward finger-pointing. It can have the, the tendency to have judgmental hearts and attitudes toward people. That when somebody's done wrong and it's been dealt with and they come back and maybe it's been revealed what they've done to look at them with disdain. To kind of say, what are they doing here? Why are we allowing them back in? I remember what they did. I remember what they stole. I remember who they hurt. I remember what they said. And, and I can't believe that we're letting them back into the church. It can have that kind of, of propensity. It can lead to gossip and slander and dinner table conversations between families in the church. It can do that. And so as a church, what we need to know is this. How do we balance this ministry of restoration and resist these sinful fleshly tendencies? What's the catalyst here? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that the catalyst for Biblical restoration is the spirit of meekness and self-examination. Meekness and self-examination. He says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. The spirit of meekness. Do you remember what meekness is? A fruit of the spirit. Meekness means that you're walking in the Spirit of God. And so if you are living your life under the Spirit's control, you're going to be able to handle a situation like this in the spirit of meekness rather than the spirit of jealousy. In the spirit of meekness rather than the spirits of hatred and wrath and emulation and sedition. What does it mean to be meek again? Well, the idea is that of gentleness, of humility and kindness uh, um, we know this word, the idea behind it is really a, a softened, temperate, and moderate approach to it. That doesn't mean you don't deal with it, 
but it means you deal with it in a way that's not vindictive, that's not vengeful. Rather than coming to a fallen brother with a whip and nunchucks, you come to him with a hand on his shoulder. You come to him with prayer. Rather than, uh, rather than uh, going off at him, you try to reason with him in kindness. Rather than throwing out inflammatory opinions, you kindly take them to the scriptures. You try to work with them. What this means is that while you have been given this responsibility of an accountability by God, while you've been given that responsibility that we're not to use it to ruin people, we're to use it to restore people. That's what it means here. Restoration must be done in the spirit of meekness. But it's also got to be done in the spirit of self-examination. He says, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. This word considering, it means to look out. It's actually the Greek word skopeo. What does that sound like? A scope, right? You keep your life under the microscope. I mean, think about a, a sniper who's got his sniper rifle and he's tracking closely his target in the crosshairs. Or think about a hunter as he's out in the woods and he's got the elk there in the crosshairs of his scope and he's tracking it and he's waiting for just the right time. He's following and making sure that he doesn't lose it. That's the idea of this word here. The difference is you're the prey. You're the target. See, you're the prey of Satan who would like to come into your life and destroy it. He would like to come into your life and use you to drag God's name through the mud. He'd like to do that in your life. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, is while you're performing this restorative ministry, you need to keep yourself in the crosshairs. You've got to remember this, that you are not above sin. What Paul is doing here is he is really reinforcing the familiar teaching of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus teach? And why behold ye the mote that is in thy brother's eye when a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. That's what Paul is teaching here. Because I think I missed this, but he said, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? That's the same word here. You're not paying attention to what's going on in your life, and what's going on in your life is a lot bigger than what's going on in their life. That's what Paul is teaching here, that we need to consider ourselves remembering that any one of us could end up in the same situation as them. We're made up of the same thing. We're all sinners. We all deal with the flesh. We all want to manifest these fleshly tendencies. Our flesh wars against our spirit. And because we are all in that same condition, if it happened to them, it could happen to me. On Saturday night, we came home from the trip to Estes to a police barricade in our neighborhood, just about three houses down uh, to the north of us, and had no idea what was going on when we arrived. We were unloading some things out, out of the truck, and I saw that 
uh, my next door neighbor, there was an ambulance that pulled up next to his house and he had gone in and the nosy neighbor that I am, I overheard the, uh, the uh, uh, paramedic there saying, we'll start with blood work. Well, my neighbor is a police officer. And so I'm thinking through, okay, I wonder if there was some kind of domestic violence issue or some kind of shootout over here that he went to help with and now they're checking him out. I couldn't find anything on Twitter or on the news or anything about it. And it wasn't until the next morning, Sunday morning after church, that I was finally able to find a news story. We found out a three-year-old girl was hit by a car and died in the hospital that night. And I had no idea what happened. The next day, my neighbor across the street, who's a retired police officer, he came over, saw me out in the front yard uh, with my kids, and, and uh, he just started talking to me about it, and he was there when it happened and everything, and, and he said that there was an ice cream truck down the street, and of course, a bunch of kids had come out and were getting their ice cream, and, and uh, this three-year-old girl had gotten her ice cream, and she ran out by the front of the ice cream truck and stepped out into the street going back across to her house. And my next door neighbor, police officer, was driving his lifted, uh, I think, Ford truck or Toyota truck, something like that, real tall, the top bumper's about right here. And he was only going about five, 10 miles an hour, nothing more than that. He saw the ice cream truck. He knew there were kids here. He slowed way down, but he never saw her coming and hit her. And she died. Now, as I'm processing all of this, the thought comes to my mind that we, my family, could have been on any side of that. It could have been my three-year-old son, Josiah. It could have been him. We could be that family grieving right now, trying to plant a church and trying to, to preach a message on a Thursday night the week after my three-year-old son is hit by a neighbor. Total accident. But I also thought I could have been my neighbor. I could have been driving as careful as I possibly could and that could have happened to me, and it could have changed my life forever to live with that. You better believe, as a police officer, he's, he's wrestling hard with that right now. But that thought caused me to consider my ways, how I drive in the neighborhood. I'm a lot more careful. I was careful before, but I'm a lot more careful now. I drive very slow. I'm constantly on the lookout. There are tons of kids in our neighborhood and some that just roam the streets on their bikes and their scooters just like I did when I was a kid. I actually love seeing it out there in the neighborhood. But I, you better believe I drive a lot slower now and more careful and eyes bouncing back and forth, making sure I'm watching. It prompted me to have a conversation with my kids about the importance of staying out of the street because I realized this, that could have been us. When you see someone overtaken in a fault, when you see someone who's fallen in sin and you're trying to help restore them, you need to remember that that could be you at any moment. And you need to let that thought keep you checking your surroundings, checking what you watch, 
checking who you listen to, checking who you allow to influence your life the most, that it ought to make you be circumspect is the biblical word for it. Constantly looking around, watching out, keeping my life under a microscope, lest I succumb to temptation the same way that they did. That's humbling. That's sobering when you think about it. And that's exactly how you properly restore one to usefulness. Don't forget about yourself. It could be you. And so what Paul's teaching here is that we should deal with sin in the church by restoring fallen believers in the spirit of meekness and self-examination. So let's summarize here how we've got to deal with sin among the church. First of all, again, expect it and deal with it. Don't be shocked when it happens, but don't tolerate it when it happens. It's got to be dealt with. Don't cover it up. And in the spirit of meekness and self-examination, we need to follow the process that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 18. That when you discover that somebody is in sin, first of all, it starts here. Am I in the spirit or am I in the flesh? Because if I'm in the flesh and I confront this person, I'm only going to do damage in their lives. I'll not be a help. So you've got to examine your own life. Where am I at? If you're, in the, if you're spiritual, and again, that's not a prideful, arrogant thing. It just means, am I walking in the Spirit? Am I manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in my life? If you are, then you go to that person and you confront them personally. If you're not, then you need to grab somebody who is spiritual and bring them to confront that person. If they repent, then be a source of restoration in their life. Love on them. Pray for them counsel them, uh, go through the scriptures with them, be a spiritual means of restoration in their lives. But unfortunately, not everyone repents when confronted. And so if they don't repent, Jesus teaches us to go and get another person or two. And again, make sure you're not going to fleshly people. They're going to do damage. You got to go to spirit filled people and you bring them and you confront them. And if they repent, praise God. And the three of you or the two of you need to function as a group of restoration in that person's life. And again, to love on them and pray for them and counsel them and study the Bible with them and check in on them and let them know you love them and care for them and do everything that you possibly can in that group to restore this person. But Jesus taught us that if they don't respond to the two or three, then you have to bring it before the church. And oftentimes when it reaches that point, they're just going to go. They're not going to repent. They're going to leave. And the Bible says that what you do is you deliver them unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's not to destroy their life. What it means is this. It doesn't mean for them to be killed or whatever, for Satan to totally overtake them. They're still believers, so that can't happen. What it simply means is this, to let sin run its course in their life until it brings them to nothing. Let their sin and the consequences of their sin deal with their flesh. That's tough. It's tough when you've got to bring somebody or a situation before the church. Nobody likes to deal with that. 
But it's what Jesus told us to do. And so when that happens and somebody comes to the end of themselves and they repent and they come back to the church, you're not to hold them at arm's length. You're not to, there, there's, there's going to be a testing and a proving time there, but your goal is not to push them away and keep them from being useful to God. No, 2 Corinthians teaches us that when a guy has messed up and he repents and he comes back, the apostle Paul said, receive him again, receive him again. Sure, there's going to be that proving time, but you love on them, you care for them, and you slowly reintroduce them to the church and to ministries, and you let them let go of their past so they can be restored and get back to being used by God. That's his plan. God still has a purpose and a plan for that fallen individual's life. And it's the church's responsibility through the forgiveness of Christ and through the help of the Holy Spirit to restore the fallen person to a place where they're productive once again. We've dealt extensively here about how we deal with it as a church. But let me take a moment to deal with this. What if you are the fallen? What if you're the one that has sin in your life? Maybe, maybe someone knows about it, and maybe no one knows about it. What if you need to be restored? What are you supposed to do? Well, first of all, don't cover it up. Don't cover it up. Come clean. Come, come clean in your life, because maybe to stick with our car analogy, if you hang out in the junkyard... You're never going to be restored if you hang out in the junkyard. So you got you to come out and you got to acknowledge that you have sinned and that you need to be restored. And you've got to acknowledge this first. I don't just have a problem with the church and God's people. I have a problem with God. I am not where I ought to be. I've been living after the works of the flesh. Jesus did not die for me so that I could go on living under the bondage to my flesh. He died for me so that I could live freely through the Spirit. And so I know this was my choice. I didn't just get tripped up. I didn't just fall into sin. No, it was my own choices, my own decisions of the flesh that led me there. I acknowledge that and I confess it before God. You've got to acknowledge your sin and then you've got to repent. There has to come a breaking with sin, whatever cost necessary. If it means talking to the person you've offended and slandered and gossiped, it's what you need to do. It means that if you've struggled with pornography, then you need to take away the devices that facilitate that in your life. Or you need to have a, a system of accountability in your life where you need to limit, limit the temptation, limit the opportunity. There's got to be a break and there's got to, listen, repentance, true biblical repentance is not saying, oh, I messed up again. God, forgive me. Oh, I messed up again. God, forgive me. Oh, I messed up again. God, forgive me. No, true. If you, if that is your life with your sin, you are not repentant. You're not. 
Repentance is where you come to the place where you say, I hate my sin so much it disgusts me and I want nothing to do with it and I want to get back in a right place with God. That is repentance where it's not in my life anymore. By the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, this is done with. And what you've got to do is confess that sin and find forgiveness in Christ. And once you've done that, don't go at it alone. Don't go at it alone. It may be embarrassing to you. You may have thoughts that people are going to judge you, look down on you, or even hate you because of what you've done. Let me start by saying this. Expect it. Expect it. Why? Because there are other people in a church who are living after the flesh just as much as you were when you messed up. And there may be people who respond in that way. Expect it. But also understand this. There's a host of brothers and sisters in Christ who want nothing more than to see the works of the flesh destroyed in your life and for you to be restored to usefulness to God. And you need those people in your life those spirit-filled people that God has given the spirit to, that they are walking in the spirit and God has given them the responsibility to help you get right. Don't go at it alone. Utilize the church that God's given you for this express purpose, to take you from your fallen place and to get you back up and useful to God again. So embrace the help of spirit-filled believers in your life so God can use them to restore you to a place of usefulness. So we've got to deal with sin. And the way that we do that is by restoring the fallen in the spirit of meekness and self-examination. But let me just remind you that this restoration is only made possible because of Jesus Christ. You see those ads sometimes? This segment was brought to you by, you know what that means? This segment didn't come to you because of their own money or at their own expense. It was at the expense of another. Listen, your restoration is brought to you by Jesus Christ. The reality is, is he came for the specific purpose of restoration. You and I, we were created to enjoy God and to glorify our creator that's what we were created for. But sin messes that up. It keeps us from enjoying God and it keeps us from bringing glory to him. And so Jesus came and he died on the cross to remove our sin from us, to restore us back to God. So once again, we could walk in enjoyable fellowship with him. And so that our lives through the sanctifi sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit can make you righteous once again before God and man. Jesus came to do that for you. And so that means that if, you're, if you are still in your sin, then it starts with confession of sin. It starts with believing the gospel that Jesus died for your sin. And it begins with calling upon him and asking him to forgive you and to save you and to wash away your sin and to restore you from this fallen condition of being dysfunctional with God to being a fully 
functional creature who enjoys God and worships and glorifies him. That is where he wants to restore you to be. And the reason why is because he knows more than anything else in your life, that is what you need. He's done the work. You got to believe him and receive him. And if you are saved, but you've fallen, restoration begins the same way. Seeking forgiveness from Christ, confessing and repenting and getting it under the blood and allowing the spirit of God to rule in your heart once again and to be able to war against the flesh once again so that you can allow Christ's church to perform its restoring work in your life. And church, when we're given that opportunity, we've got to perform it in the spirit of meekness and self-examination. And if we'll do that, the spirit will work in the church through spirit-filled believers to restore the ones who have fallen. I'm thankful for his plan because his plan has worked time and time again throughout the centuries and it'll work today and it'll work in your life if we'll follow it. Lord, we thank you for your plan of restoration. And we acknowledge with humility that none of us are above the most heinous of sins. I remember that one man said that we do evil naturally. But we only do good by the grace of God. And so we're not for your grace. Any one of us could step out and fall off the ledge into sin. But I'm thankful that you gave us a church to restore us, to make us new again, and to get us back to walking in the Spirit and fulfilling your plan for our lives. Help us as a young church to apply these principles in helping people be restored. I pray if there's anyone that's not saved, that they would trust Christ as their Savior. And I pray that if there are any that are dealing with sin in their lives right now, I pray they would not cover it up, but that they would deal with it and that they would take advantage of the church you've given them to facilitate restoration through the work of the Holy Spirit and help us to be meek and considerate of ourselves, self-examining as we seek to work out your plan. So Jesus, please work and help us to respond to you in Jesus' name.